Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about hospitals and healthcare issues. Our guest is former Columbus Regional Hospital CEO Doug Leonard. He's here with us in the studio, and he now heads the Indiana Hospital and Health Association. If you have questions and comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or outside of the Bloomington calling area, which, of course, includes Columbus, 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Doug, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for driving over. Now, where where's your office now? In Indianapolis? It's, it's in downtown Indianapolis. Okay. This morning, I, I hung around Columbus for a while and visited some friends at the hospital. I haven't been there for a while, so yeah. I drove over from Columbus. All right. Well, we're glad you made the trip over. Thank you. Um, let's start out by having you explain to us what the Indiana Hospital and Health Association is. Sure. Well, we are, a, um, I guess, a generic description would be a trade association representing hospitals. We have about a 130 hospitals, uh, acute care hospitals that are members. We have about 130. 70 members in total, and that includes other kinds of hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, community mental health centers, etc. And so we represent their interest in the legislature. We also provide some services to them, some uh, data services, education, and generally try to uh, be the voice of hospitals in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So now you said you've been on this job for three months. Three months, right? uh, two days, four hours. <laughs> <laughs> so so in the first three months and, and a few days, how what have you seen as the the largest issues, the, the highest priorities for uh, your association and for the hospitals? Well, I think there are no real surprises. Things that concern me as a CEO at the hospital in Columbus and concern you know other CEOs are are sort of uh, clustered together, and they include. Um, Things like uh, the reimbursement, you know, and we use that phrase, about 60 percent of, of the care provided at, at most hospitals in the state are the government insurance programs of Medicare and Medicaid. Now, that will vary in Gary, Indiana. They'll have more Medicaid than perhaps uh, you might have in Bloomington as a, as a ratio. But generally speaking, hospitals are very dependent on those, those forms. And so um, – a lot of our interest is trying to make sure that we're adequately reimbursed for the care provided. And a lot of your listeners might not realize that while Medicare, especially in Medicaid, um, are both uh, good insurance programs for the beneficiary, for the recipient that uses that insurance to cover themselves or their families, um, they neither of those uh, plans actually cover uh, the cost of providing that service at the hospital. So that puts the hospital in a position of, of doing what has been um, referred to as cost shifting, meaning covering the costs that are not paid for by those two big plans um, to the other payers, which includes you know the Anthem and SIHO and other kinds of commercial insurance plants in the country. So that that tends to occupy a lot of the uh, time of CEOs trying to make sure that the costs are covered. Um, there's that. And uh, recently, I, you know, I, I think one thing that exploded after I became president of the association was the whole property tax issue. And so uh, that is uh, certainly occupying the attention of legislators and the governor, et cetera, on how we're going to adequately cover that. And hospitals, most hospitals in the state are um, charitable, not-for-profit hospitals. And in that role, they, um, they're relieved from their communities um, in paying property tax for their main service. Now, uh, most of us in hospitals also owned other uh, properties like houses that we might use in the neighborhood for expansion in the future. And generally speaking, most hospitals leave those on the tax rolls. But, um, but the whole question of where are the communities going to get money to cover their their uh, cost of fire and police, et cetera, they're looking at all sources. And one of those is, you know, churches and hospitals and schools and those that have not paid property tax. So that's that's kind of a contemporary issue that sort of exploded on the scene after I took over. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say, and you know, Mary Catherine knows we've been doing this a long time. I, I've admitted, you know, many of my shortcomings on the air. But <laughs> when, when it comes to the whole issue of health care, you know, sometimes my eyes glaze over or roll back <laughs> in my head because it just seems like such a big issue and so complex. Um, so, you know, from an Indiana hospital, I mean, obviously, the Indiana hospitals are mm-hmm. one thing, and then the national health care scene is right. is something else. Um, do, you know, do you are there strategies with in the state, you know, forget about federal strategies and you know, nationalizing health care and those kind of things, but are there things in the state that we need to be doing 
do you think to help cover citizens, make sure that people can come to the hospital, get their services, the hospitals can stay in business because they're being reimbursed heavily enough or enough? Right. Um, you know, what are some of the steps that need to be taken? Yeah, that's a, so that's the, a big you know, question. That's yeah. a huge question, and <laughs> it's a question that many are asking right now. In fact, I, my argument is if it wasn't for the continuing war in Iraq occupying our national attention, I think health care and health care reform would have been the number one issue um, in this uh, federal election uh, or presidential election, I should say. And you can come at it from so many angles. I mean, it you know, from the first uh, from the outset, our, when we talk about a health care system in this country, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it was it was never a system that was designed. I mean, it, it just erupted and it continues to erupt in new forms every day. I always told my my uh, friends in Columbus, when I talk about you know the greater national scene, that it was like uh, one of those kaleidoscopes I had when I was a kid, the cardboard one with the colored rocks, and every time you twist it, you'd get a different shape, and that that twisting is happening every day with new uh, it, everything from new technology emerging. That's you know just amazing, uh, miraculous, life-saving technology, but it comes at a huge price, and that's coming on the market every day, and and we you know have to ask ourselves how much of that can can we afford? Where's the sweet spot between what's uh, really worth the investment and going to have a return and saving lives or making lives, you know, people live out the longer life with dignity and, and uh, health? And then um, you couple that with the, uh, what's going on in, in pharmacy and the, you know, emerging new drugs, et cetera. And we, uh, as, a, as a country, have a lot of schizophrenia about our attitude towards health care because we have no, in this country, no constitutional right for health it's not a part of our constitution, but we we all assume that it is. You know, we feel like we have a right to health care, and I think we should. But nobody has ever answered the question: if we have a basic, fundamental right to health care, how are we going to create a system? How are we going to pay for it? And so, you know, there are so many questions that come up: the increasing cost, the burden of the. You know, we're one of the only countries in the world that still depends on an employer-based health care uh, coverage uh, plan, and that's kind of a historical anomaly. And so we have um, companies, you know, that are competing internationally with their competitors from countries where their system is a tax-based system. And so the burden isn't as acute on them for the cost of carrying that. So now they're saying, well, we can't afford to continue to offer this. We have a growing number of uninsured. Many of them are working. Um, so uh, from almost any angle, it's a complex question. And, I, you know, from my standpoint, I think it goes back to that fundamental question is, do we have a right to health care in this country? And if so, what uh, what form does that take? What what should that coverage be? And then how are we going to deliver that? And uh, short of any uh, national uh, debate and agreement on that, I think we're still going to have a complex system that is just growing topsy. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a couple things come to mind. Then I'm going to go to a caller. But one is I heard Baron Hill say that over and over again in the mm-hmm. campaign. You probably heard it too when he said, you know, the first issue about health care is, is it a right or is it a privilege? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I'll get back to the other issue, which is about what communities can do, you know, absent some national um, health care sure. policy, what can communities do? But I want to go to the phones first and Pat. Pat? Hi. Hi. Go right ahead. Uh, I had a question. Uh, some people were talking to me just um, a few days ago about the fact that they really needed to get some things, some health things done, but they could not afford anything and they have no health care. So uh, I uh, wondered, uh, we all wondered, how do you apply and where do you apply for Medicare or Medicaid? Well, Medicare you do. But for Medicaid, do you should you uh, get on Medicaid before you get to the hospital, or um, does the hospital, uh, you know, help you fill out the papers and get you on to help you get to Medicaid? Okay, Pat. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. The hospital will help. They, um, you know, business office staff in every hospital are, are really well trained and prepared and have a real incentive to help you. Uh, get the coverage that you um, uh, deserve and are eligible for. So if you contact your local hospital, I'm not sure which community you're in, but talk to the business office and they'll give you um, guidance and uh, support all through that process to help you get signed up for what you're eligible for. All right. right, Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call, Pat. 
Our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Our guest today is Doug Leonard, who is the head of the Indiana Hospital and Health Association and also the former Columbus Regional Hospital CEO. Um, you know, every time you get a bill from the hospital if you, after a stay, you're always it's, it's always a little staggering. Mm-hmm. You can never figure out, oh, my gosh, you know, where did all the money go? This mm-hmm. is so expensive. Um, how do you answer people who, who can't figure out how that bill can be so high for, say, a, a 24 or 4 or 48-hour stay? Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's a great question. And, and one of the things that's always complex to explain to people is that – and there was always the classic uh, – which I hope most hospitals don't do anymore, but the $10 Tylenol or the $10 yeah. aspirin. And, you know, what? the best way I can explain it is that um, the hospital is a tremendously expensive operation. You have uh, 24-hour availability of nurses, of doctors, et cetera. I'll use the emergency room, for example, because that's often the way a lot of people engage the hospital is that someone will come in and they've, maybe they've twisted their ankle at the softball field. They're relatively healthy and they get there and they wait and then they get an expensive bill. And one, one thing that they need to understand is the people that work there, the doctors, et cetera, are prepared if, if that person walked in having just been shot or in a terrible car accident or a heart attack or a twisted ankle. It's the same sort of system ready for whatever walks in. And so it's a very expensive way to provide care. Um, when you look at the, the hospital itself, um, you're, you, it, the old, you know, many years ago, people would say, gosh, I could stay in a real expensive hotel mm-hmm. and, you know, I would only pay this much and the bill cost me this much. Well, and I'd have a lot more fun. Yeah. They, yeah <laughs> maybe. It's a pretty fun place. <laughs> Depends on how you define fun. I guess. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, you're not paying for the room. You're paying for the 24-hour nursing care. You're paying for what could happen as well as what does happen. You know, you're paying for the fact that maybe the, you're taking an, um, an aspirin as part of your drug regimen, but if suddenly we find that that's uh, in conflict with another drug you're taking and you have an allergic reaction, then the staff is there to respond in an emergency to save your life. So you're paying not only for what you get, you're paying also for what's available in case you need it. And so every every day, the cost in the hospitals tends to go up by more specialized staff, more expectations, more technology, more availability. And, you know, what it's even hard to say, you know, what a hospital was 20 years ago compared to a hospital today. It's like comparing a, you know, a Model T to a Boeing 727 because it's a completely different animal and evolves every day in terms of what's covered and what's available. Um, another thing that I know um, hospitals are, are doing, well, I'm, actually, I don't know that hospitals are doing them, but mm-hmm. communities have uh, facilities now where people can go if they have a sore throat or, or you know, some kind of sure. uh, issue. I, I hear in Bloomington we mm-hmm. call them prompt care, but right. I know different communities have different names mm-hmm. for them. Is that something the hospital association supports, or, or what's your take on that? Yeah, that, it's not, um, you know, purely in the mission of the hospital association, but what uh, the um, the members of our association are the hospitals and the hospitals are often the ones that operate these centers in Columbus. We had uh, what we called prompt meds and the hospital operated them. Uh, Often they're in partnership with physicians and sometimes they're just entrepreneurial businesses where a physician or group have started it on their own. So I think what what it's not so much a question of is that uh, one of our, you know, sort of uh, covered members, but rather I think it's a reflection that um, there's a very entrepreneurial force in healthcare right now looking for alternative ways to provide care. And that's both a blessing and a curse. And this is, I'm kind of drifting into a question you didn't ask here, but um, the, the blessing is that um, there are uh, many that see opportunities to provide uh, more efficient services or faster turnaround or more availability. You know, now we have in many places in the country, uh, nurse practitioner minute clinics and Walmarts and other, um, you know, new experiments like that emerging. And that's that's sort of driven by an entrepreneurial force that says, mm-hmm. let me get in and find a way to, you know, make some money in this. The curse part of that is that there remains the community hospitals that have the the 
uh, responsibility, I think, expected by the community to provide a lot of services that don't pay for themselves and to be available to any, anyone regardless of care it's, or regardless of payment. And so uh, some of these entrepreneurial forces sort of strip those those profit services away from hospitals and leave them with an, um, a greater um, difficulty in providing that whole range of sort of safety net services to the community. Give us an example of a of a something that would pay for itself for a hospital and something that would not. Okay, an emergency department, for example, or or let me use a birthing center. Um, you know, nearly fifty percent of the births in Indiana are. Um, uh, patients with Medicaid, and Medicaid tends not to cover. Hold on, over fifty percent. Right. Wow, that's it's, staggering. It is staggering, isn't it? I mean, that's a that's a a real reflection on on um, you know the challenge for an OBGYN specialist, for example. You know, half of their patients. Um, come from Medicaid or, and that's not even including those that come without any form of insurance. So you add that in there too and they're the people with nothing at all that that come in. So uh, you take a service like a, a birthing center or an OBGYN practice, then that requires a subsidy in a service like a radiology department where you have MRI and, and CT scan, et cetera. And those, I think anybody looking at their bill would say, gosh, that costs a lot. But the cost of that doesn't just cover the cost of buying and staffing that piece of equipment. It also covers a loss taken on the OBGYN service or for um, patients in the emergency department that can't pay for themselves, et cetera. So you, you lump all that together, and the typical hospital might have a modest profit margin at the end of the day, but that comes from you know putting for, uh, services that make money and services that not make money and melding them together and ending up hopefully ahead at the end of the day so that you can keep reinvesting in the business. I want to try to tie some of this together because, you know, you said earlier, you talked about sort of the evolution of hospitals and how they're a totally different place than they were 20 years ago. And I assume what you mean by that is that technology has been driven. There are big pieces of equipment, very expensive. And then on the other hand, there is so much more competition for community hospitals than there were uh, 20 years ago. So how you know how does that change the environment in which you operate? I think you probably just answered that partially. Yeah, partially. I think competition is one of the one of the most challenging things going on for hospitals now, um, because it's the competition comes from a number of different forces. First of all, you have other systems that are competing for the same market share. You know, you have a Clarion or a St. Vincent or St. Francis, larger systems that are spreading out around the state, and then um, so there's hospital hospital competition. Competition. And then you add in that um, for-profit hospitals. I, I know what you're going through here in Bloomington with competing hospitals. And then um, probably the part that a lot of people don't see but is one of the biggest challenges for a, a community hospital CEO is competition with their own doctors uh, who are uh, looking – you know, their income may be in decline or they feel it's in decline or they may uh, just want more income. And, and so they're looking at ways that they can bring new technology in their offices. So an orthopedic group that might open their own hospital or might buy their own MRI machine or something. And so that that is volume that may have gone to the hospital before that provided throughput and profit to support those other services is suddenly taken out. And so that that's, you know, one of the challenges that, that I think keeps a lot of CEOs awake these days. <laughs> yeah. Now, the uh, association that you're involved with, is this all not-for-profit uh, not hospitals? No, or? we have for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals. Okay. Both the hospitals in Bloomington, for example. Mm -hmm. members of the association. So you have to look out for all sides of this. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but let's look at that radiology example of, you know, that maybe coming out of the hospital and, and being done by a private practice. I know it's also partly, I mean, I think the, the, the hospitals have to take some responsibility for this because mm -hmm. it's often a much more pleasant experience in yeah, a smaller absolutely. setting, a, a more, if you will, serene uh, mm -hmm. than, than, you know, a, a hospital is oftentimes <coughs> kind of a hectic place and, and not that um, that much fun to go to yeah, um, or something like that. You know, that that is the advantage that they have carved out for themselves is that they often are at a place and a location and create an ambiance and the environment that makes it much easier to use. And that's, that's a challenge for hospitals now. And I had this conversation about an hour ago with a colleague where my, my, what I've been preaching is that I think hospitals 
um, have to start to sell our services the way people want to buy what they want to buy. Now, I, I always use banking as an example. You know, 20 years ago, um, a full-time working person couldn't use a bank. Uh-huh. They opened at 9 o'clock. They closed at 4.30. They weren't open on Saturday. They didn't have ATM machines. They didn't have Internet, et cetera. And look at the change there. And that change didn't come because they said, hey, let's go do these 50 new things. It came because people were demanding, you know, I can't get there at 8 in the morning or, or 9.30 in the morning. Um, I'd like to do it at my convenience. You know, when I get my prescription filled, I go to a drugstore that's open all night because I happen to be a night owl. So at 10 o'clock at night, I'll say, geez, I forgot to get my prescription. I'll go get it filled. Um, you know, you walk into a Walmart in the middle of the night, which I haven't done very often, but <laughs> they tell me that they're filled. Uh, so uh, hospitals have been, and I think this is a v- vulnerability we have if we're going to compete well, have been a little bit lax about getting out there and selling our services, especially the outpatient diagnostic elective stuff, the way people want to buy them. So, you know, I, I would argue that we may look more like a shopping mall in the future uh, than we do like a hospital today. And, you know, if you have to go to the hospital and you have to register twice and you've parked 30 doors away and you're, you're sitting next to, you know, people that are quite ill and you think, geez, this is no fun. So, um, you know, if I can go and walk right in the front door, you know, at the shopping mall and get it done. So that's – and many hospitals have, you know, gotten this message and are, are really working. Well, I know your, your local hospital in Bloomington has acquired property where they're going to uh, be doing a lot more of their outpatient services. And I think the, the really um, sort of well-designed system of the future is going to look physically a lot different than it does today. Interesting. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, outside of the local calling area. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Our guest today, former Columbus Hospital Regional, Columbus Regional Hospital CEO, Doug Leonard, who is the head of the Indiana Hospital and Health Association. It's about break time, so I think we'll take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU will host a debate between Bloomington mayoral candidates Mark Cruzan and David Sabog. We need your questions before the program. Calls will not be taken during the show. You can submit your questions to noon at indiana.edu. Please do include your first and last name, daytime phone number, mailing address, and email address. The debate will be part of Noon Edition, WFIU's weekly public affairs call-in program, And that's Friday, September 21st at 12.06 p.m. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our guest today, Doug Leonard, who's the head of the Indiana Hospital and Health Association and former Columbus Regional Hospital CEO. If you have questions or comments about health care or the hospital system, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Now, before we get back to talking about health care and hospitals, I want to mention next week's show, which is a mayoral debate featuring Mayor Mark Cruzan of the city of Bloomington and Republican David Sabog, a city council member who's running against him in the mayoral election. Uh, We're going to have them in the studio. Mary Catherine and I will be asking them questions, and we want you to be able to weigh in with your questions too. So you can send them today or anytime this week to noon at indiana.edu. Right. It's it's one of the few uh, shows that we won't have open phone lines, so you need to weigh in ahead of time. Right. 
That's right. Okay. Okay. So we hope you'll take advantage of that. Next week, same bat time, same bat station. <laughs> That's right. Or bat channel. Yeah, bat channel. Well, I right. changed it to stations oh, yeah, okay. it's radio. Oh, yeah. You're right. <laughs> I customized it. All <laughs> right. And today we hope you'll weigh in with your questions about health care. We've had uh, one and we have another uh, person waiting on the line. It's Margaret. Margaret? Hello. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Um, would you have your guest talk about the recent news that I've read about Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements to hospitals being cut uh, this year, starting in October, and that those that you know even bigger cuts will be made ne- next year and the year after? Um, how are hospitals going to cope? Well, that's uh, you know at the outset of the show, I said that was one of the the biggest issues hospitals have is, you know, we're we're funding uh, the war, we're funding other kind of national priorities, and so every year in the national uh, budgeting process, the government looks for where they can cut, and um, it's it's a real frustration because as as I said, our costs are not covered now, and I want to make sure I distinguish what I mean by cost. I'm not talking about uh, a profit that the hospital needs to make. I'm talking about actually the cost of paying the salaries of the nurses, paying the heat and light, et cetera, when um, we, you know, it may cost us a dollar to provide care for a patient and we receive maybe 65 cents back from Medicare or Medicaid. Now that that varies across the country. But um, so whenever there's um, an attempt nationally to uh, cut further um, the payments to hospitals, um, that really uh, frustrates us, and that's where I think, on a, um, you know, in the lobbying work that we do at the association, we really try to pay attention to that. We we work with the American Hospital Association to try to appeal to legislators and the administration to to reverse some of those attempts to cut payments because what you know the net effect is is something that a lot of people don't think about uh, the effect on economic vitality in a community because if we um, get those cuts, there is no other pocket it comes from except to charge someone else to make up for it. And the someone else, uh, we talk about insurance companies, but who's paying for the insurance are individuals that are buying the policies and importantly, uh, businesses, the employers who are paying this increasing burden of the cost. And it's a form of hidden tax that I think uh, deserves more uh, debate and understanding because I think the business community really ought to rise up and have a voice on the government's unwillingness to fund uh, the benefit that it's selling to people or, or providing to people and and then shifting that cost uh, to employers and manufacturers. And so they're trying to compete internationally and they can't afford to sell products uh, with that kind of additional uh, burden on them. So I, I really like to pro- propose that it's a hidden tax that ends up shifted to businesses. And I think there ought to be more dialogue about that and, and look for new ways of financing healthcare in this country that isn't going to shift that burden to them. All right, Margaret. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. Mm-hmm. 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or noon at edu. As I said earlier in the program, you know, sometimes the health care issue is so complex to me. So I want to make sure, uh, again, and have you explain this maybe even a little bit more. So you provide a service. Medicaid pays $0.65 cents of the dollar for the service. You have to find that $0.35 cents someplace else. Mm-hmm. So where is that someplace else? Well, uh, we did some numbers a few years ago, and I, I want to make sure I, I qualify that I am I'm simplifying it greatly. It's a lot more oh, complex in sure. terms of how we get reimbursed. And, and if someone from the Medicaid program is listening to me, I don't want to have them think that I'm trying to take shots because it's a lot more complex than I make it. But generally speaking, I think that's that's what happens. And so – um, uh, we did some uh, charts a few years ago at the Hospital Association. I had an independent study done that showed, for example, that if if Medicare and Medicaid paid, so let's say, 65 to 70 percent of our cost, then our employers um, paid 140 percent of our cost so that they're actually carrying uh, a lot more of the financial burden. They're paying a premium um, to cover the deficits that are created by these national and state programs, and so um, you know we have a very complex and I, I would I shudder every time I think about <laughs> it what we call a charge master at a hospital, and it uh, you know it has maybe tens of thousands of line items, and it's all an attempt to try to at the end of the day have enough money to at least have a modest profit so that you can keep reinvesting in the business, and so it's moving uh, dollars around and charging 
leverages around so that you, you know, hopefully at the end of the day have had, uh, ended up with financial stability? So uh, let me make sure, sure that I understand it. Okay. If, if, I, if I can understand it, then a lot of people can. But okay. So partial, partially then, I mean, you, you, you're getting – your expenses are growing because of all sorts of reasons. Right. Medicaid's uh, maybe they're reimbursing at the same level, or maybe even a little less. Sure. Certainly, the percentage is less. Mm-hmm. So, the burden is heavier on the businesses. The mm-hmm. businesses, consequently, either pay, you know, they, their employees—that would be me—pay mm-hmm. more for my premiums, mm-hmm. or uh, the businesses maybe pay less in pay raises because right. they have to pay more in benefits. So, right. it really does wind up coming out of the pocket of it individuals. Does. You know, and the, the, um, you know, from a kind of a national debate, often when the administration proposes cuts in, in Medicare, they'll say, they'll use the phrase, we're going to cut payments to providers. And that's a very, you know, I mean, you think, well, providers get enough money, but they don't, what do they need it for? But what it really comes down to is that it's cutting the amount that they'll pay us, which consequently means that somebody else is paying more. And you're you're right on. You're following that that track a little bit. That would say, well, if you know, uh, I use a uh, Cummins engine, you know, a Cummins Inc. in Columbus, a big business, international business, competing all over the world, and so their costs go up for um, their their employment costs go up. So what are they faced with? They're either cutting other costs. They're cutting employment or they're shifting more. And this is what's happening increasingly. They're shifting more of that health care cost to their employees. And some companies have had to cut benefits that they were going to provide to retirees. Some have cost, uh, you know, had employees pick up a greater share of the premium cost. Uh, some have discontinued benefits altogether. And it's, you know, it, it's actually for many employers, it's kind of uh, gut-wrenching because they want to be an employer that, you know, provides a good, stable set of benefits for their employees and make sure that they are, um, you know, that they have good life balance and coverage in all kinds of ways. And yet their their financial condition doesn't permit it. And, it, you know, health care is one of those things. There are many other forces too, but that's that tends to be what happens when health care costs go up. Okay. We've got a phone call. We have an email. Let's go to the phone first. It's Joe. Joe? Yes. Hey, thanks for talking about that issue. I wanted to bring up a related thing that's not covered much locally, but if you read New York Times and Wall Street Journal, it mentions a lot of these Medicare cuts are uh, for they're not going to reimburse hospitals for errors. And I wondered if you could address that. that sure. They're just simply saying, look, if you make errors, we shouldn't pay for that. The hospital should absorb that cost. And the other second part of that same question is, how can the uh, your uh, population, your readers, uh, be more informed about hospital errors at the local hospital, like Bloomington Hospital? How can we find out information about uh, those kinds of things so we can make informed decisions about seeking care? Sounds okay. like a question for me. Yeah, those are great questions. The, um, the, the part that the caller is calling about is that there, there is another force going on in healthcare right now is um, there's a desire to make sure that uh, care provided in hospitals is as safe and error-free as possible. And there was a study several years ago by the Institute of Medicine that declared that up to 98,000 people a year died from errors in hospitals. And, you know, whether the numbers were perfectly right or not, you know, one one unnecessary death from an error is too many. 98,000 is a national crisis. And so there's been quite a movement to try to find ways to provide uh, assurance that care is, is safe um, and, and error-free or at least errors that don't cause harm. And so one of the, the measures that he mentioned is that Medicare, among the things that it's doing, and it's been doing many good things to help um, bring attention to and provide safe care, is to say that we won't reimburse for errors that occurred. And I, you know, I think as an association, we support anything that's a, a, a movement towards reducing the number of errors. Uh, that, that one uh, if you take it out of context of everything else it do, uh, that it does, it, it has some weaknesses because it doesn't really deal with the fundamental cause of the error. It just says we're not going to pay for it. Um, but if you put it back in the context of other things that Medicare and a lot of other um, agencies and hospitals are doing to reduce the um, potential for errors in hospitals, then it's one of a family of things that are going on. Can, can I sure. ask a follow-up to that? Uh-huh. If Medicare doesn't pay for it, then who does? I mean – Again, the hospital has a certain amount of money. Does that just 
right. pass along. Right. Well, that's the question. Okay. I think, uh, you know, uh, in the greater scheme of things, when you go to a macroeconomic standpoint, then there's a still a cost incurred and it's going to be covered someplace. You know, I wanted to say, though, one, one thing that most hospitals do in this, uh, um, you know, this effort by Medicare made attention um, or, or got the media's attention. But I know as a hospital CEO, if we had an error, you know, Hello? if we knew that we really had an error, then the first thing we did was not charge the patient for, you know, what occurred. I mean, that, that tends to be the practice in most hospitals. So Medicare is kind of formalizing what would have happened otherwise. Um, and the second part of his question is where do you find out? And there are a lot of sources you can seek now. One, um, hospitalcompare.gov is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid site, and they have a number of measures um, that hospitals are, are um, publicly reported on that would help you know whether your hospital is doing a good job against this family measures. And there are a lot of other things uh, out there on the Internet and in uh, the State Department of Health, et cetera, reports that are coming out to compare one hospital to another. Yeah, I think, Joe, I think that was probably partially a question for you and partially me as the editor of the local newspaper. Okay. So we'll find we'll – find, uh, okay. I'll get more information from you about sure. that. Sure, we'll, be happy we'll to. Move on. All right, our, our phone numbers again are 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Doug Leonard is our guest. He's the head of the Indiana Hospital and Health Association and the former Columbus Regional Hospital CEO. Here's an email that came in. It says, you have been speaking of Medicare and Medicaid issues, but what about private insurer issues? It seems that Anthem, as I'm sure other major insurers, continues to put burdens, increased documentation, time limits, etc., on providers that in the end will reduce the payments they, the providers, receive from Anthem. These conditions seem to change monthly, rendering it impossible to keep up with the demands, thus reducing the payments that Anthem provides to providers. How can hospitals keep up with these changes and demands? Well, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, there's a follow-up, but you go ahead with that one. Well, I was we'll... going to say, I couldn't have described it better, you know, that that person knows how frustrating it is that, you know, the system we have where we're paid, uh, most of the care provided is paid for by an insurance plan in one form or another. And he's, you know, I have been talking about Medicare and Medicaid, but uh, Anthem is one of what we'd call the commercial insurers, Anthem United, uh, SIHO locally, et cetera. And in some of those plans, it is an extreme frustration for the hospital because, um, we're constantly um, negotiating how to continue to get paid for the service, and often we have a whole fleet of personnel um, that we pay to uh, sit on the phone and call these plans to uh, get justification or get a you know um, approval for providing the service. And hospitals, and I, uh, you know, it's. This is the thing, the whole administrative burden in hospitals to get approvals, to get paid, to, you know, to have all the administrative stuff do, that just takes money away that should be at at the bedside uh, with patients. And so that's a real challenge. I know there's a second part to the question. <clears throat> yeah, I just had to chuckle at your, get, your gift for understatement. Um, further, <laughs> uh, further, how would a single-payer system affect hospitals? Well, that's, a single-payer system is one that's getting a lot of attention nationally now as a, a discussion of is that a way to try to uh, reduce cost and simplify. And that probably relates um, Can to – Can you define that? Oh, sure. Um, right now, uh, a payer and the, the term we use as payer is an insurance plan or – um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, others, and, uh, the commercial insurers and such. And the concept of single-payer system is typically a government program where everybody is under the same insurance plan. And it takes various forms in other countries. You, know, you might have a basic plan provided by the government, such as in Canada, and then that's supplemented by private plans if people want to buy additional kinds of coverage. Um, but the, it's being debated now partially in response to the concern about 45 million and plus Americans that have no health insurance, and often they're the working poor, uh, their employer doesn't provide it, et cetera. And so people are saying this this is a national embarrassment to have this, that you know so many people are out there without coverage. So is there a, a new design, a new commitment to coverage where we could say, let's have, a, let's have the government or a form of uh, a plan for everyone to provide at least a basic level of health care? And you, you, you put that then in the whole 
concept or the whole context of our right to health care and how we're going to finance it and what's the role of the government, et cetera. Okay, and I can't let you get off the show without asking your reaction to Michael Moore's movie Sicko. I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen it yet. Oh my gosh! You know, I, can't I live in Columbus, and uh, we we don't have a, uh, access to all the films that are coming out there, so I'm waiting to see it. Um, I'm you know, and I, I'd probably be remiss commenting on it, but I, I I understand that it's a lot about that particular question. It it's about it access and how we ensure and whether people have a right to it, etc. So I'm anxious to see it. So I won't be a movie review viewer today. Okay. <laughs> I did see some good films last week. If you that, right? <laughs> we'll talk after the show. All right. All right. We have another phone caller, and it's Jim. Jim? Hello. Hello, Jim. Hi. Uh, well, this kind of goes along with the, the, the one-payer uh, uh, comment that was just made about... Um, I hear a lot of the arguments against the one-payer system. Is, oh, you'll wait in lines. Uh, the, the, the care uh, will be of a lower quality and that sort of thing. But uh, from personal experience, having used uh, healthcare in foreign countries that have one-payer systems, uh, the weights, and this is not just because I'm a foreigner, because I watch the, the everyday people that are there, um, are much shorter than any doctor's office I've ever been to in this country. Uh, I can have an appointment, say, for 10 a.m. and then have to wait until 11.30 to get in. Um, there it's about 15 minutes at the most. And uh, second of all, uh, uh, there's the, the concept of, uh, of uh, financing this. Uh, well, you know, if, if they pass some kind of a, a constitutional amendment or something of that sort that created this fund, and prevented Congress from raiding it like they do Social Security all the time, then uh, there would actually be surpluses in, in Social Security if they weren't constantly sapping money off of that. So, and things like Medicare would be fully funded. But I uh, just wanted to kind of get your, your, your perception on, on, on these things. Sure. I, you know, he brings up a really good point because often the debate about a single-payer system um, tends to be fraught with myth and misconception about what it's really like in other countries. I mean, there um, you hear in Canada that uh, wait time for, you know, a total hip replacement might be, you know, six, not, six months, nine months, et cetera, where I could get that today in the U.S. And, um, you know, I, I don't know um, – if you know how often that's true, or if it's basically true, but you also um, hear that in other countries, and Canada is a good example, where when you poll the people about their satisfaction with the healthcare system nationally, they're generally pretty proud of it and they're happy with it. So um, now, I'm I, please don't take either of those comments as a summary of how it really works in Canada, because I'm just saying that All the right. debate has uh, really, I, I think, needs to be informed by fact about what's going on in other countries, because I hear in some countries where they have a tax base single-payer system, that they don't have wait times and that things work very well. So I think that you're, you're hitting right on the crux of how we're going to have to address this issue nationally is let's get facts in about how it, how it works or doesn't work. And you also made a very good point, too, about if we're going to have this, if we say that uh, health care is a right and we're going to fund it, then let's be honest about what it's going to cost us to fund it and then let's secure that so that uh, we aren't, um, you know, uh, offering a, a government promise that's unfulfilled. Right. And one more thing on the, on the cost aspect is uh, I, I just had a procedure here in the States and I got the, the bill for that. Now, the hospital charged 200 or I'm sorry, $2,500 for that. And uh, the uh, insurance uh, allowed was 500, and that's of course what the insurance paid. And then, uh, so if you're uninsured in this country, you're actually getting charged five times more than what uh, what uh, the insurance. Uh, you know, that that seems to me to be quite an unfair system where you charge somebody five times more than what you charge. Uh, the insurance company. It's well, just a one-price thing that, you know, everybody pays. Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the, the problem in your presentation there is that the insurance company said what the value of this is, and that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, the, the charge often has 
has uh, not a you know a, a real explainable relationship to the the cost of the service because of all the things I said earlier. But um, that's one answer. The other is that um, every hospital in in the country, I believe now, and there may be some that are exceptions, but I doubt it, has has um, recognized that there was a time when people without insurance were actually being charged the full charge, and now nearly every hospital that I know of has uh, developed um, discount programs for the uninsured so that they're not disadvantaged um, by not being part of a purchasing plan like an insurance company, um, you know, negotiates with a hospital. So it's, you know, it's not as simple as the insurance company says that it's uh, only worth one-fifth of what the charge was because that's their determination, and we don't always agree with those. All right, Jim. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Um, that's part of the whole complexity of, of uh, being a patient, a consumer, because I know when I get health care bills, it'll say, you know, here's the charge, here's the discount, here's what the insurance company says it is, and then you pay this. <laughs> so right. I just get my checkbook out and yeah. I, you know, whatever it is. One of the biggest challenges, I think, for people, and this is the hospital too, is coming up with a bill that makes sense, that's simple to understand, and it's, just, it's the way we're paid that has created this system that's almost indecipherable anymore. And, you know, I think if I could wave my magic wand and try to fix the system, I would say, let us design care the way it's supposed to be designed, safe, doing only the things that need to be done at the right time in the right place without disruption to the patients, and then pay us for that. And, you know, we would find, I think, and uh, and give people access. Uh, so I think we'd find if we could, <laughs> you know, wave a magic wand and yeah. simplify our world, that that's going to be the solution. You know, provide care that's supposed to be provided when it is, no more than should be, no less. Make sure it's reliable and accurate. And then, you know, design systems to pay the hospitals and the doctors for that care. No more, no no less than, you know, what's necessary for that. And uh, now, how do we go from this bizarre, complex system we have to that? I, You know, that's a conundrum. That'll keep me employed for a number of years yeah. and many other people. I, I, think. I think if I could wave my magic wand, I'd just make you secretary of health or whatever <laughs> Put it in your hands. Yeah, we'd you really start going down from there. <laughs> uh, here's another uh, question. Uh, the overriding question of today is who pays the difference of what Medicare and Medicaid pays and what the real cost is to hospitals? How do the private insurers come off so blamelessly? The answer to who pays is the difference between oh, – oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we had a bad type here. The answer to who pays, the difference is those of us who pay for health insurance. This includes businesses and individuals who are insured too. Our premiums continue to rise and your in- reimbursements continue to be cut. But the blame – put the blame where the blame is due. My guess is that the hospitals of Indiana do not see the profit margin that WellPoint slash Anthem does. Any response to that? <laughs> you want to get out your ten foot pole for this one? <laughs> no, I, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. I mean, I you know I think a big question is, and I, I'm sure my colleagues at the insurance companies would like to hit me with a ten foot pole now. But you know, I think we ought to ask ourselves: uh, Is that additional profit, the sometimes egregious profits, I think, really contributing to the the well being of the citizens of the United States, or is it um, an unnecessary layer? So I think when, um, you know, many uh, doctors are seeing their income go down, when, um, you know, hospitals are struggling to try to get all of the the costs met. Now, I'm not saying we're without fault either. So don't, you know, that's a whole other show, I think. But um, and then you see, you know, these enormous incomes going to the insurance plans. You have to ask, is that really the best use of that money? That should go to the care at the bedside. I'm, you know, I'm a person. You know, I'm a hospital operator by training, and I care about care at the bedside. That's where all of our focus should be. That's our mission. That's why we have these jobs, and everything ought to emanate from that. So, if it doesn't contribute to making that patient safer and that nurse at two in the morning having what she needs to take care of that patient in a safe way, then I think we ought to question whether it's adding anything. Mm-hmm. All right, we have two calls we're going to try to get to before the end of the show. Andy is first. Andy. Hi, how are we doing? Good. Uh, very quickly, uh, maybe it's a comment, maybe it's a question. I just want to get the, your comment on this. It seems to me, uh, in talking with uh, uh, some of my brothers and sisters that are in the healthcare field, uh, they're always talking about the fact that this country really has a problem with uh, 
preventive uh, medicine, preventive maintenance medicine. Uh, and, and the fact that a lot more money could be spent on that and, and in, in line of that would, would bring down some of the health care uh, uh, problems that we have as far as uh, costs at hospitals, costs at, uh, uh, for, for procedures that are very high-priced, which could have been prevented at that point. And it just seems to me as a country we've really gotten away from uh, – uh, the preventive maintenance side of this thing and our more reactionatory in our in our uh, uh, services or health care services. So I just wanted to get your comment on that. Quick comment? Sure. I can tell you that if you talk to primary care doctors, which, you know, typically are family practitioners, OBGYNs, internists, et cetera, that they'll tell you how frustrated they are that the service they provide, which is, you know, the basic primary care services, are not valued as highly as some of the procedural services that other specialties have. And we, you know, our system tends to value those things more. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, as we look for national solutions on this, you start with the real fundamental pieces. You know, you start with childhood immunizations. You start with keeping people healthy instead of fixing them when they get sick. You know, we get paid at a hospital for doing an amputation on a you know, a foot or a toe of a diabetic patient, um, but there isn't uh, a payment in the system for us to go out and make sure that that person has good fitting shoes, that they're keeping their insulin in order, et cetera. So, you know, we're going to have to reorder our priorities, I think, just the way you described. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Andy. And Thank you. We're going to go back to the phones. And uh, as predicted, Dr. Rob Stone. Good. Rob, we predicted you'd be here today. Well, I'm a little slow getting on board, but I guess I'm maybe getting the last word. You are. We've got about a minute to go. Okay, so my question is very brief. I'm a physician, and uh, what I'd like to know is what's the best way that we can really help uh, build the political will to move this country towards a Medicare for all, single-payer type system? Sure. I, I think, uh, and I know about Dr. Stone, he's one of my, uh, you know, heroes that is doing, you know, is really at the forefront of calling attention to this question, doing great things in Bloomington and elsewhere to try to, you know, um, deal with the, the uninsured and find uh, ways to provide for them. And I think you mentioned the word political will. I think the more we have grassroots support calling for uh, reforms in the system that will do the things that we've described today, uh, I think the more power we amass that way, the better off we are. And so you, you know those avenues yourself on how to use it. And I think by continuing to make those calls and drawing others into your army, I think uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll make more progress. All right, Rob, any final word? Well, I just appreciate uh, all, the, all the word we can get out. It's an important issue, and everybody needs to get involved. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. Talk to you again. All right. And we are about out of time. I want to thank our guest today, Doug Leonard, who's with the Indiana Hospital and Health Association. I want to remind you about next week's show, which is the two candidates for mayor of Bloomington. If you have questions for them, please send them in to noon at indiana.edu. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.